You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore that app. So I'm, uh, I'm extremely excited because not only did PFF fix my account, but I've never been, I don't think, ever as happy to look at PFF grades. Granted, the defense wasn't great, but we'll, we'll get to why I don't care as much about that. Now, I also want to talk a little bit about overreaction, my thoughts on why that's okay to some extent, as long as we do it rightly, maybe why we overplay the whole, uh, you know, week one doesn't tell us anything thing. But on top of those two little tidbits that I want to discuss, I think another major theme, and it's, it's just one week, I get that, things can change, but man, oh man, the Fire Gutekunst crowd took about the biggest L this week that I could possibly imagine. And they might even be doing victory laps right now because they're looking at this as far as, well, Jordan Love was drafted in the first round and look how good Aaron Rodgers is. That might be your one half of victory if we assume Jordan Love was supposed to take over like next year. But we don't know that. And I don't think there was a definitive plan one way or another. So until Aaron Rodgers leaves and Jordan Love takes over and he's terrible, I don't know that you can count that as a victory quite yet. It's going to be a while. But um, yeah, just... I mean, across the board, beautiful. Everything, I've I've mentioned this before too. People get upset with Brian Gutekunst, and sometimes it's somewhat understandable, but what has he done that, using information that we know, not we should have drafted a wide receiver and we didn't, even though we haven't seen a single game yet and we don't know what's going to happen. He didn't do what I feel like he should have done, therefore he's a dummy. Just like he should have got Landon Collins instead of Adrian Amos. What a dummy. He should have got D. Ford instead of Zadarius Smith. What a moron, right? The only thing that I'm aware of that Brian Gutekunst did is is uh, help to hire Matt Lafleur, who's been a fantastic coach. Take this team from a team that's not even eight and eight to 13 wins and go into an NFC Championship game in a year. Bring us Zadarius and Preston and Amos and Jair and Elton Jenkins and Rashawn, who I'm still excited about, even if you aren't. Who by my estimation, again, had a pretty good game. And all these other guys, like Savage, that we get excited about. Excited, yeah, that is that was the right word. I feel like I said it wrong. Sounded like a stutter, but it's just, it's just there's an ED at the end, so it's fine. So anyways, again, y- you can feel however you want to feel. It's fine, I don't mind, but we're going to talk about how Brian Gutekunst, who has taken a beating, along with Aaron Rodgers, all offseason, who has taken a beating. This guy's washed up, and Brian Gutekunst had the worst draft of anybody. Well, that's about to bite you all right in the face. Because as best as I can tell, Aaron Rodgers was the best quarterback in week one. Brian Gutekunst had the... is... is, I mean, based on week one, pretty dominant. Over the course of his career, pretty dominant. Anyways, before we get into all the goodness, please make sure you check out Packernet.com for all your news and information regarding the Green Bay Packers. Make sure you get in the Packernet Podcast Facebook group. Make sure you like the Packernet Podcast Facebook page. Big giant shout out to John Bauer. Really, really appreciate that donation, my man. If anybody else is uh, interested in supporting the show, there's plenty of links uh, in the show notes. Lots of different ways to make that all happen. And I just really appreciate everybody that has supported me through this. Helps to stave off August, which is an expensive month, especially now that I have college football stats. That's an additional expense on top of Game Pass and... PFF and all that stuff. But anyways, very, very mucho appreciado. Why don't we take a break and um, get into all the gooey goodness. Ladies and gents, I once again want to tell you a little bit about my bookie and why it's very, very important that you listen up. Do not skip what I'm saying. Just wait. I promise you it's worth your while. The NFL is officially back. And that means action-packed Sundays and huge cash. Lots of Packer fans made money this this past weekend. Good money, because Vegas was dumb enough to pick the Vikings over the Packers. Do not miss out on another opportunity. 
Get in on the action. Use promo code OVERTIME, and they're going to double your first deposit up to $1,000. That means you put in 10 bucks, you get 20 to play with. You put in $1,000, they're going to hand you $1,000 to wager. Ridiculous. So make sure you're betting with the absolute best this NFL season. Go over to my bookie, use promo code OVERTIME, double your first deposit, because your winning season along with the Green Bay Packers, begins today at my bookie. But that's not all. Oh, it gets juicier. Overtime. This podcast network is giving away $500 cash. All you have to do is sign up. When you make your deposit, you take a screen grab of your MyBookie account, email it to overtime at advertisecast.com. If you forget any of this, message me directly and I'll help you out. That's overtime at advertisecast.com. $500 is going to be given away to one lucky winner. And that drawing is going to take place at the end of September. So make sure you get in. Don't mess around. It's already September 15th. So my bookie's giving away a free $1,000. Overtime's giving away a free $500 bill. I have no idea why you're not going. Just just pause the show and go do it real quick. Mybookie.ag. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Where, oh, where, oh, where to begin? Let's start with the fact, um, no, let's go with this little PFF article I found about how to not overreact to week one. Um, I'll be honest, I skimmed it, because there's a whole lot of words, and I hate, I just, I don't know, it's like a mini protest in my brain. Every single article on planet Earth is capable of summarizing articles with about eight bullet points. Instead, they write out about 600,000 words, and that annoys me. And so I do my best to skim and create my own bullet points in my brain. Filter out the 98% unnecessary words. For example, football season is right around the corner, and to say that we're excited but it would be an understatement has nothing to do with your PFF data study. None of that is relevant. I get it that that's what you're supposed to do when you write an article. I just don't understand why. Are we friends? Are we hanging out? Are we just having a conversation, a casual chat, sitting out on the deck? Even if we were, that would be annoying if you started every sentence like that. Football season's right around the... Why do I care? Why are you talking to me? I'm trying to stare at the trees blowing in the wind. And you're rambling like you're telling me poetry. Why don't you get out of my house? Freak. And what is is that? I don't understand. Give me the information and go away. Super annoying. But anyways, in summary, one of the things they point out, and and what I was getting at is that it seems somewhat contradictory, but there's probably something tying it together that I just skipped over, and I refuse to read this whole thing to find out what that is. However, a couple different charts that they pointed to here show that we can't really get to know a team until about week six, which seems fair. However, there is at the bottom here another chart in which they look at the first two games predicting the next two games, and what they find is that there's no difference between week one and two predicting week three and week eight and nine predicting week ten. And I think the missing piece here is just the absolute lack of information, and they kind of allude to this in the article. Why is it we react to crazy games week one as opposed to week ten? And I, I, I believe that this is what we do. We, we look at crazy games week one and say, yeah, well, that's week one. What do you expect? But crazy games happen week 16 also. Losses that should never happen. But the reason we don't act the same way is because we don't have a full body of work. Let me give you an example. When the Philadelphia Eagles lose to the New York Giants, excuse me, let me try that again. When the Philadelphia Eagles lose to the Washington footballs, we get a little bit crazy. And and to be honest, we don't know what to do with the information, again, because there's no prior information to work with. 
So we can go from the Eagles are absolute garbage, we could say Haskins is a freak, and the Washington things are are really great. Our, our minds can go to pretty wild places. Now, let's just say that this is week 10, and the Eagles are 9-0, and and the Washington whatevers are 0-9. and And the Washington dummies go on to win the football game. Our reaction is going to be a lot different. Not because it's any less crazy, but because we already have a pretty good idea of what's going on. We know that the Eagles are a much better team than Washington. 100,000% we know that. But we also understand crazy stuff happens sometimes. So we kind of shrug and go, oh, that's crazy, you bunch of morons. You dropped that one. Eh. And we rationalize it one way or another. Well, there was this injury or that injury. They got too comfortable. It was after a bye. Whatever. We say stupid stuff to rationalize why crazy stuff happens because we just, for some reason, can't just let crazy things be crazy things and leave it alone. But in week one, we don't have any prior information. We don't know who's... Ten- we don't know if, if... Right, again, that was a random scenario I made up. What if, when we get to week 10, they're both 5-4 and four and Washington wins? That, that changes what we believe in terms of compared to... 9 and 0 and 0 and 9, but it doesn't really change much after the fact. Same thing, right? Washington wins and we go, oh, that's crazy, but it's not really all that unexpected because they have the same record going in. And we don't really believe Washington is better automatically. We look at it and go, well, you know, out of 10 games, they probably win about five, and this is one of the ones they win because they're about equal. Maybe Washington's a little bit better. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Maybe Philly's a little bit better, and they just have it. The point is, we don't freak out about it. Crazy stuff is just crazy stuff, and it's not a big deal. But week one, we get into our own heads because, we, first of all, we've had an entire offseason of assuming things. And then when those things come, you know, Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback in all of football. Now, if it's week 10 and he's been doing this all year, then we keep saying that. If it's week 10 and he's been same old Aaron Rodgers and has an elite game, we get excited about it. We say he had an elite game and we just kind of leave it at that. We don't say that he's the best quarterback this year and he's an MVP candidate and all. It's just it's it's just a thing that happens because we know players have great games, players have terrible games. Offenses are great, offenses are terrible. Defenses are terrible, defenses are great. Things happen. They go up, they go down. They go down, they go up. Good teams become bad teams, bad teams become good teams. It's just a thing that happens. So the the two things that I could I could say about this Number one, the biggest reason we're freaking out isn't because week one is is ultra crazy. It's just because we have a lack of information. But we shouldn't completely rule it out. That's the other end of the spectrum here. We shouldn't rule it out and say, well, it's week one and everything's about to get flipped on its head. Not necessarily. And the thing is, everybody points to, oh, really? Well, what about this one game in week one? Okay, what about that one game in week 15 that was crazy? Crazy stuff always happens. But I learned this, I think, last year when I said, don't freak out. Look at what happened earlier in the season. And everything was pretty predictive. The, the teams that were good by about week 12, or when, whenever I was looking, were generally the teams that won in week one. Packers beat the Bears. Eagles beat Washington. Bills beat the Jets. Vikings beat the Falcons. Ravens beat the Dolphins. Chiefs beat the Jaguars. Titans beat the Browns. Rams beat the Panthers. Seahawks beat the Bengals. Chargers beat the Colts, which is kind of iffy, but close enough. 49ers beat the Buck. Cowboys beat the Giants. Lions and Cardinals tied, which is right on par. Patriots beat the Steelers. Saints beat the Texans. Raiders beat the Broncos. I don't think there's one anomaly in this entire thing. That didn't get flipped on its head. It wasn't just a coin toss. The better teams won almost across the board. That's almost an anomaly in terms of it's rare how often that happens, period. If I randomly look at week 11, I just picked one off the top of my head here. The Browns beat the Steelers. Uh, Jets beat Washington. Saints beat the Bucks. Vikings beat the Broncos. Bills beat the Dolphins. Colts beat the Jaguars. Cowboys beat the Lions. Falcons beat the Panthers. Ravens beat the Texans. 49ers beat the Cardinals. Patriots beat the Eagles. Raiders beat the Bengals. Rams beat the Bears. Chiefs beat the Chargers. Again, it's it's pretty across the board the better teams won. So there's no guarantee. So it's, it's a little bit of both. You don't want to freak out because there's going to be some fluctuation. There's going to be some variation. And we don't know. Is, is this one of those anomaly games? Because every team has anomaly games. Every team has, has games that they lose that they should win. They have some games that they should win that they lose. It does happen. But, but we got to stop pretending that, well, it's week one, nothing matters. And maybe there's a little bit more volatility because there's no preseason. But I, I think it, it holds true that, well, that's true for everybody. Good teams with no practice are going to beat bad teams with no practice, generally speaking. 
So it's not that there's no truth to it. It's just that it's overstated. Again, as they found in their study, if you look at weeks one and two predicting weeks three, uh, three and four, it's really no different than weeks eight and nine predicting weeks uh, 10 and 11. The only thing they found is that you can't really figure out what's going on until week six, not because weeks one through five are so crazy necessarily, just because we don't have any information about the team yet. Once we get through weeks one through three, four, five, and six-ish, then we've kind of built up an understanding of what the team is, and then we can start predicting into the future. It's no different than if we were to start at the back, you know, if, if let me put it this way, if we were to go, let's say we were all in a coma together, and we woke up in this coma. And we decided that we, we missed the entire 2019 NFL season. We want to know what happens. But we're going to start at week 16 and work backward. It would be the exact same thing. It's not that week 16 is more predictive than week 1. It's just that we don't, we don't have any information. So if we went from 16 backwards, it would be the same thing. We wouldn't know anything until about six weeks in going backwards. That would be the point at which we could start understanding teams a little bit better. Does that kind of make sense? I think I've just decoded this PFF thing as I'm talking my way through it. Which is good news for the Green Bay Packers, because we won and we beat the Vikings. Now, there's a lot of volatility that's going to get tightened up, but the fact of the matter is we can expect, with a few exceptions, and I'm sure there's a couple exceptions, the good teams won in Week 1. The bad teams lost in Week 1. When we get to Week 16 and look back, I don't think we're going to look at this and say, yeah, that was, that was just garbage. None of that came true. The Chiefs are trash. The Packers are trash. Dolphins are way better than the Patriots. Bills beating the Jets is a fluke. Ravens beating the Browns is a fluke. Seahawks beating the Falcons is a fluke, right? I mean, it's, it's for the most part, the teams you expect won. Now, again, look at, look at for example, the 49ers and the Cardinals. I think that's a really good example. A lot of people are real high on the Cardinals, and, and a lot of people, whether it's the same people or, or you know, different people, think that it's, there's a good chance the 49ers are regressing. Now, maybe this is a fluke. That doesn't necessarily mean it's week one. It just means flukes happen. It's a divisional game in which crazy stuff tends to happen. And if we find out the 49ers are a dominant team, end up winning the Super Bowl, and the Cardinals don't even make the playoffs, it's not necessarily because it's week one. It's just a thing that happens. However, it's entirely possible, too, that the Cardinals really are getting a lot better and the 49ers really are regressing. A lot of people watching the game have been listening to several podcasts have been saying Jimmy Garoppolo kind of looked like garbage. He was kind of the... the the anchor of this team just dragged, they were trying to drag Garoppolo around. He just wasn't making the right throws, the right decisions. The timing was not good. Maybe there is a hangover coming for the 49ers and the Cardinals genuinely are a better team and not by much, 24 to 20 is close, but it's it's a real race. The point is, it's not that we don't know because it's week one. The point is, we don't know because we don't have enough information. Once we see weeks two, three, four, five, and six, then we'll be able to look at it and say, we, we have a pretty good idea that the Cardinals are this and the 49ers are this. I'm sure I've over-explained it, but there you go. I'm also kind of over-explaining it because I'm kind of excited because this is somewhat of a revelation, and it all makes a lot of sense to me. And things that are new, that make a lot of sense, and run contrary to popular belief, nothing gets me excited more than that. Because all of us are now smarter than everybody else. You're welcome. Doesn't it feel good to be better than everybody? Man, oh man. Make sure you uh, don't finish out today without telling them you're better than them. Just get on Twitter. I genuinely want to see this. A sea of my followers on Twitter saying, I just want to let you know I'm better than you. That will make me smile. Or just get in the Facebook group, and then we'll find out who really listens to the show and who's just in the group for fun. When a lot of confused people see a sea of posts (laughs) saying, just so you guys know, I'm better than all of you. I don't know. I got a weird sense of humor. It's just a thing. Don't worry about it. So anyways, there's that, which again is is relatively good news because if we assume that in general, not that it's impossible the Packers are a bad team and this was, was, is one of those anomaly games, generally speaking, the good teams won week one and the bad teams lost. Packers won. It's a good sign. Beyond just, well, it's a W. No, 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 no. It is a W, but it's also at least a little bit indicative that the Packers are going to be a good team. Also, as I've talked about before, and, and, and this will be a decent segue into what we learned via PFF, I think we should take more credence in what was good than what was bad. Aaron Rodgers playing at an elite level doesn't happen just because the other side is so bad. There's a point at which somebody can look good because the other person is really bad, but there's also a point at which an average Joe couldn't get to this level. And I think that's especially true for quarterbacks. Just because the corners are bad doesn't mean you're going to get the ball in the exact right spot at the exact right time. That doesn't just happen. Mitch Trubisky going up against zero corners 
would not have made as many beautiful throws as Aaron Rodgers did. So why don't we actually start there because um, I, even though I've been blasting it all over social media, some of you maybe didn't hear or see, Aaron Rodgers was uh, pretty good yesterday or whatever day, a couple days ago. As of right now, and there's a couple quarterbacks, uh, the Monday night games obviously are not completed quite yet, but there are three quarterbacks from week one that had an elite grade. Lamar Jackson had a 90.9 overall grade. Russell Wilson had a 91.2. Aaron Rodgers had a 96.0. For those of you that are unfamiliar with PFF grades, those are largely unattainable type grades. I think I saw Aaron Donald get a 99 once, but generally speaking, a 96 is very, very rare. To put that into context, only two times last year did any quarterback get a 96 or higher. In week 15, Drew Brees had a 96.3. In week 10, Lamar Jackson had a 97.9. Only two times last year did any quarterback get that uh, that high of a grade. So to, to put that into further perspective, Pat Mahomes last year never had a grade this high. Let me make that a little bit more clear. Pat Mahomes has never graded that high ever in his life. Lamar's done it once. By the way, Lamar might be a better quarterback than Pat Mahomes right now. I'm just going to put that out there. He might be like QB1 in the NFL. Don't want to overreact to week one, but oh my goodness, that guy is a freak. I mean, I always said when he comes out, how cool would it be if he was like, you know, kind of like Michael Vick 2.0, whatever. No, Michael Vick's got nothing on Lamar Jackson. Oh my goodness. He is the most terrifying. I mean, he's he reminds me of Pat Mahomes if Pat Mahomes was... It's like Michael Vick and Pat Mahomes got together and it's just... I mean, maybe he's not quite Pat Mahomes as far as his arm, but... He's got an arm, and that's horrifying. Anyways, trying to pump up Aaron Rodgers here. As far as Aaron Rodgers' career, this is the best he's done in a decade. It was 2010 the last time he looked this good. 2010. It's the second highest grade he's ever gotten his entire career. Think about some of the greatest games you've seen Aaron Rodgers play. Some of the best games he's played. He's had one game. 2010 against the Dallas Cowboys in, I believe, Week 9. Aaron Rodgers had a grade of 97.3, which I think is exactly what Lamar got. So Aaron Rodgers' best game ever Lamar had in his like first official year playing, which is ridiculous. But he had a 97.3. So Aaron Rodgers just absolutely blew it out of the water. And I, I saw JJ had uh, hit me up and said he's surprised that he would have a better game than last year against the Raiders when he had a perfect, perfect passer rating. The issue I have with passer rating, for the most part, not that it isn't a, a good general metric, is that it's just kind of a, a pile of statistics, and it's lacking a lot of context. For example, when MVS drops a pass, that hurts your passer rating, and that's silly. We're also looking at ball placement via, you know, PFF is looking at ball placement, whereas your uh, passer rating is not. Difficulty of the throw, obviously deep passes are accounted in both, because if you get more yards, it helps your passer rating. But, you know, either way, if you want to say last year against Oakland was better, that's fine. i genuinely don't think so. I, I definitely remember, although my memory is not as good as I wish it was, like some of you freaks who can remember every detail of every game, I don't remember watching that Oakland game and thinking, I've never seen Aaron Rodgers play this good, or I can't remember the last time I've seen him play this well, which is exactly what I was saying in that last game. The deep ball passes were vintage 2010, 2011, 2012 Aaron Rodgers. Starting around like 2015-ish, you know, around the time he started dating Olivia Munn, that's when these problems started. And yeah, you know what? I'm going to go there. I'm absolutely going to go there. There's all kinds of excuses, right? He found something in 2010. He's been doing squats, whatever. Fine. That's your thing. I got another thing. Aaron Rodgers' problems started when he started dating Olivia Munn. He stopped dating Olivia Munn and he started looking good again. He started dating Danica and he started looking bad again. He stopped dating Danica and he's having his best year since 2010. It's it's one of those things where it's like halfway a joke where it's like, ha ha ha, I mean, obviously that's not it. But it's kind of funny because there's a pretty strong correlation there between his play and whether or not he's dating someone. But at this point, it's like, no, you know what? Stop it. You want to start dating people, you want to get married, have kids, do all that fun stuff, I wish you the absolute best. You take all that big giant pile of money, you live your absolute best life. I look forward to it, man. I hope you live in in perfect happiness and harmony the rest of your life. But as long as you're a Green Bay Packer, you're not allowed to date anyone anymore. Plain and simple. Because this is held basically 100% true 
every single time. So I just don't want to play with it anymore. Maybe that's not it. Maybe he found some magic formula about his legs and his leg strength, so he did a couple squats, and now he's elite. Whatever your theory is, that's fine. Guess what? Let's just do all the theories. You keep watching game tape from 2010, keep doing squats, and stop dating people, and we'll just we'll just make all the bad omens go away. Then we don't have to worry about which ones are true and which ones are fake. We just won't play with any of them. We're not cracking mirrors. We're not messing with black cats. We don't even use salt in our food or let somebody else salt it. So if they spill it, that's their problem. They can go ahead and, you know, whatever. I don't know. Let somebody else hold your umbrella because I know there's a thing with that. No ladders allowed in anywhere in Lambeau Field. Just, just, just don't mess with it, man. Because this is the result. And this, as I've been saying, this is not a fluke. And that's what's so perfect about this happening. If the Packers just kind of won, and it was on the back of a good, not great performance, you could easily say, okay, that's because the Vikings' corners are so bad. And, and despite the fact that that already obliterates the Vikings fans' garbage narrative and the national media's garbage narrative that the Vikings are elite at every level, the defensive line, the linebackers, the safeties, which is always garbage, and they never wanted to talk about the corners, and nobody wanted to acknowledge that the Vikings got worse more than anybody else, Despite the fact that it annihilates that, it doesn't do much to make you feel good. Because it's like, okay, but what happens when we play even a mediocre defense? Which the Vikings are not. Zero pass rush ability. Just putrid. But what happened? Well, I don't know. And, and I'm not saying Aaron Rodgers is going to replicate this. This might be the last time we see anything like this in his entire career. And guess what? It wouldn't be that surprising. And it wouldn't even be an indictment. Because this is a once-in-a-career kind of a game. Even for the best Again, Pat Mahomes has never gotten a grade like this. And, and, you know, take the grades for what they are. It's still just an unbelievable kind of a performance. But still, there's a difference between this being a blip and then he's just not good anymore, or this being a blip and he goes on to be elite for the rest of the year. Maybe not quite this good, but he's still very, very good. And as I said, if Aaron Rodgers genuinely is declining and he just doesn't have it anymore, I don't think it's physically possible for him to put together a game like this. I just don't. I don't think there's any excuses out there that can make this go away, that can make that performance go away. Again, you put Mitch Trubisky on a field with his wide receivers and no defenders, and he doesn't get a 96 overall grade. And I'm not just being flippant about that. Again, I watched those games. I saw the balls flop in the wrong areas because the, the receiver and the quarterback are just not on the same page. That has nothing to do with defense. And by the way, how many times were guys completely blanketed? Devontae's touchdown, he had a guy right on him. Alan Lazard's touchdown. He had a guy right on him. It's perfect ball placement. Half of these throws were perfect ball placement where only the receiver could get it. That has nothing to do with it. And by the way, I don't I don't know the best way to kind of bring this up, but if we look over at the Vikings performance, yes, the defense was bad, which makes me so happy to say that worst defense in football via PFF right now. Now, granted, that's that's one side or the other. Which which again the Vikings defense is bad because the Packers offense is good. Maybe the Packers offense is good because the Vikings defense is bad, but still, the entire narrative gets thrown out. Because via PFF, the Packers have the best offense in football and the Vikings have the worst defense in football. There's no universe in which the Vikings have a good defense and the Packers have a bad offense, and this happens. It's not an anomaly. It doesn't happen one time out of ten. It doesn't happen one time out of a hundred. Bad defenses don't do this to good, or bad offenses don't do this to good defenses ever. It doesn't happen. But interestingly enough, the best players on the defense were corners and safeties. Now granted, there's only three players that weren't terrible. Jeff Gladney was the top corner on the team. Which is a great sign for the Green Bay or for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, I had listened to a uh, Vikings YouTube channel that's part of the fan-to-fan network that I'm a part of, and they talked about how Jeff Gladney looked good, and they wish he'd played more, and he probably should have, because he was their highest-graded corner. But Harrison Smith was the second-highest. Cam Dantzler was the fourth-highest. Mike Hughes was the fifth-highest. Not that they were good. They got ripped to shreds by the Packers receivers. But again, better than everybody else. For those that are wondering, out of 17 defensive players that played, Yannick was 12th. PFF did give him credit for one pressure. It was actually a, uh, a hit. So he's got that going for him. But Yannick had a 42.5 overall grade. Again, 60 is average, 50 below average, 40 is bad. And he's he's dangerously close to the 30s, where once you get down to the 30s or less, I just call you kind of putrid, garbage, whatever. Only two players in the seven. The, the highest, let me just put it this way, the highest graded player who played only nine snaps had a grade of 70.4. Barely good. But he's a corner. Top five players are three corners and a safety. So even that narrative gets blown up. Your best players were corners. Why are you blaming your bad corners? 
But um, the, the, the exciting thing overall, and this, this is going to slightly tie into the uh, Gudekunst haters taking an L. We'll get more specific on that, but we'll just kind of leave that in the background of our mind here. As we rip through the offense, because just about every offensive category, the Packers were pretty dominant. Obviously, the number one quarterback in week one, once in a career kind of, of, of a performance, best in the last decade. So good to have him back, Aaron Rodgers. But if we flip over to wide receiver, not surprisingly, Mr. Devontae Adams is uh, number eight overall. Now, statistics were obviously pretty dominant, but again, wide receiver is always tough to crack because you've always got a bunch of hugely dominant guys, and, and a lot of guys have kind of fluky things, like Willie Sneed. That's that's a weird thing about it. Same with, same with fantasy football. Some wide receivers are just consistently solid. Some wide receivers have like four or five elite games and then just completely fall off. Willie Sneed, Sammy Watkins, Devontae Parker, those kinds of guys, Devontae is going to rise up above them. But overall grade, Devontae is one of the best. If you look at just receiving grade, he moves up to seventh. If you look at yards per reception, Mr. Marquez Valdez-Scantling, as usual, is third overall, 24 yards per reception. Alan Lazard was 22nd in that category with 15.8. Yards after the catch per reception, you got Alan Lazard at 16, or Alan Lazard and MVS tied at 16 with 5.8 yards after the catch per reception. That's like, it's after they catch you getting six, that's ridiculous. How about longest receptions? Well, MVS was fifth with a 45-yard reception. Devontae Adams was eighth with a 40-yard reception. Alan Lazard was ninth with a 38-yard reception. How about first downs? Devontae Adams was tied with second with eight first downs converted. How about passer rating when targeted? Alan Lazard is tied for number one in the NFL with a 158.3. Marquez Valdez-Scantling tied for fourth with a 149.3. Devontae Adams, seventh, 144.1. Three wide receivers in the top seven for passer rating when targeted. Now that has a lot to do with the quarterback. But still, again, it, it just every category you look at, these guys are just everywhere. It's Packers, 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 Packers. Even if we look at next-gen stats, it's kind of the same thing. If you look at fastest ball carriers, MVS was third. Tyler Irvin was 13th. Alan Lazard was 14th. Devontae Adams was 19th. Out of 20 players that were the fastest, the top 20 players, four of them were Green Bay Packers. Since when are we that fast? I mean, we know MVS is fast. He ran 21.1 miles per hour on his 45-yard touchdown reception. In fact, I can I think I can watch the video here, and I think I'm... Oh, no highlight available. Oh, well, I'll find it later. Go find his 45-yard touchdown reception, and he was running 21 miles an hour in that. But the fact that you got Devontae Adams was the 19th fastest guy is ridiculous. 20 miles... 20.11 miles an hour he was running on his 40-yard touchdown reception. If you look at improbable completions, Aaron Rodgers is three of the top seven. He's got four of the top 20 most improbable receptions. Four out of 20. That's 20%. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers has 20% of the most improbable completions. He was number one and number two. However, Ben Roethlisberger's pass to Chase Claypool uh, yesterday was more improbable. Shouldn't have been that improbable considering I'm pretty sure Chase pushed off, but that's a whole separate issue. But 14.3% Aaron Rodgers to Devontae on his 40-yard touchdown reception. Aaron to Devontae on his 24-yard reception, 16.2%. Aaron to MVS on his 45-yard touchdown reception, 23.2%. And then Aaron Rodgers, 28.9% uh, success on his 4-yard touchdown reception to Alan Lazard. Or as my son says, Gazard. It's Avante and Gazard. Which, I'll just slip this in here. There's no question at this point, Devontae Adams has crossed into that Jordy Nelson threshold in terms of the mind meld with Aaron Rodgers. They are 100% on that same level of just being completely in sync to where Aaron Rodgers is throwing the ball well before Devontae's even out of his break and Devontae's just like jogging over to the sideline to make the catch because it's just too easy. It's it's It got to the point with Jordy where it was just unfair with those back shoulder throws where they were completely indefensible, and that's kind of where we're at now with Aaron Rodgers and Devontae. Some of this is just completely indefensible. There's nothing you can do, especially when you factor in Devontae's route running. When you know it's an out route, and the defender doesn't, and the ball's basically there by the time Devontae turns, and you add in how good of a route runner he is, in other words, how cleanly he's going to be coming out of his break, what are you supposed to do to stop that? There's nothing you can do. And then finally, for uh, next-gen stats anyways, Remarkable rushes, which is how many rushing yards you got over expected rushing yards. There are more stats, but we'll get to those in a little bit. I'm just kind of proving a point here. Tyler Irvin ranked 13th on this list of the top 20. 
He was expected to get six yards. He ended up getting 15. Alan Lazard was 19th on this list. He was expected to get six yards, and he got 13. I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful thing when every single category, every single offensive thing I'm looking at, it's, oh, here's Packers. Oh, here's more Packers. Oh, there's more Packers again. Even if you look at rushing grades, which nobody really did all that fantastic, but if you remove the um, minimum rushing attempts, which means smaller sample size, but let's just do it anyways because some of the better running backs we had in this game um, didn't get that many touches. The fourth highest graded running back in the NFL in week one was Tyler Irvin. The 10th highest graded running back in the NFL was A.J. Dillon. Two of the top 10 running backs. Now, Aaron Jones didn't actually grade out very well. He had a pretty poor running grade, which I view as a positive for, well, one major reason. And that is we know how good Aaron Jones is. Meaning, how much more is this offense going to improve when Aaron Jones gets back to having a really good game? And let me provide a little bit of insight into why he maybe struggled in week one a little bit. Going back to next-gen stats, they have a uh, metric, I guess, where they look at how many times you faced an eight-man box. Number one in the NFL, Aaron Jones, 43.75% of the time. Remember when I said yesterday that it seemed like the, the defense, the Minnesota defense, was just crashing down to stop the run? Almost half the time that Aaron Jones was in the backfield, the Minnesota Vikings sold out on run, which, again, probably points to why the Packers were so successful through the air. The Vikings tried their best to take away the number one guy. If, if we can take away Devontae and we can take away Aaron Jones, that's going to give us our best shot at stopping this. But what happens when Aaron Rodgers is playing so well that he can fit the ball perfectly to Alan Lazard and MVS? It's exactly what we've needed for a long time when you can't just take one thing away and win. Aaron Jones has been the bane of the Vikings' existence. He's absolutely carved them up two, two games in a row at least, shredded them all in 2019. Zimmer came out and said, we're not going to let that happen. And with the lack of help we have along the defensive line, we have to bring as much as we possibly can. And they did, and it did. It was relatively successful, although Aaron Jones was able to pick it up a little bit in the second half when the defense started getting tired out. Clearly not a, a vintage Aaron Jones game, but again, that's why. He faced an eight-man box more than any other running back in the entire NFL this week. They sold out on Aaron Jones. It worked, and they got killed everywhere else as a result of it. So in a sense, although Aaron Jones didn't play all that well, Aaron Jones was a major reason why we won this game. Because if we don't have Aaron Jones, they don't feel the need to sell out against the run. Just the threat of Aaron Jones was good enough to help us win this game. They spent so many of their resources trying to stop Aaron Jones, it opened everything else up. And as teams get away from that and start to respect Aaron Rodgers, probably starting in week two and moving toward we got to stop these receivers, which Detroit will probably have a little bit more success if Okuda's back and Trufant and those guys. But what's that going to mean for Aaron Jones? It's going to open him up a little bit. And we're going to see more A.J. Dillon. We're going to see more Swerve and Irvin. Again, two of the highest graded guys. And, and, and how beautiful is that? And here's the other. <laughs> Again, there's just there's too much. There's too much. So they were scared of Aaron Jones and, and sold out when he had it. They didn't do that when anybody else had the ball. As a result, Tyler Irvin and A.J. Dillon were two of the highest graded running backs, two top 10 running backs in the NFL in week one. Probably a big part of the reason for that, the number two highest run blocking graded team was the Green Bay Packers. Despite all the injuries, Matt LaFleur's influence is clearly coming into play. And it's not just the offensive line as you would expect. Remember what I've said for years, that this is a, a primarily a pass-blocking offensive line, not so much a run-blocking. These guys are actually pretty bad at it, including Mr. David Bakhtiari. David Bakhtiari was the ninth highest-graded run-blocking tackle this week. Actually, I take that back. Let me filter some guys out. He was eighth. Rick Wagner was tenth. Rick Wagner, by the way, had a phenomenal game, and I'm glad that they finally put him in because it paid dividends. I'll leave it at that. So the Green Bay Packers had two top 10 run-blocking offensive tackles. Corey Lindsley also was the third highest run-blocking center in the NFL. Guards weren't quite as impressive, but there was a lot of flopping around. Runyon also was characterized as a tackle, which is incorrect. He did play one snap at tackle, and for some reason they decided let's call him a tackle, which is stupid, but whatever. But again, that's not all. It's not just the offensive line that's really good at blocking. What about our tight ends? Well, Josiah DeGuara is the fourth highest graded run blocking tight end after week one. Mercedes Lewis, the eighth highest graded run blocking tight end in the NFL. And of course, let's not forget Mr. Alan Lazar. He was graded 18th, which doesn't sound all that impressive. That's 18th out of 93 wide receivers. And he did have a 71.8 overall run blocking grade, which means he was good. And that's not going to change because he is Alan Lazard and he's a beast and that's part of why he's on this team. So we have 
one of the best pass-blocking offensive lines in football. We have Elton Jenkins, who went out and played tackle and seemed to do a fantastic job. We had John Runyon come in and do a fantastic job. Um, on top of being one of the better pass-blocking offensive lines in football, this is now apparently one of the better run-blocking offensive lines in football. We have arguably the best quarterback in all of football. We have arguably the best wide receiver in all of football. We have MVS and Alan Lazard, who not only seem to be, as I said yesterday, the biggest thing is that they're doing what they do best. Alan Lazard is a big-bodied prospect who uses his body like a tight end and is able to dominate corners physically. MVS is utilizing his speed, and Aaron Rodgers now, assuming there isn't a huge drop-off, able to get the ball exactly where it needs to be, utilizing those talents. When MVS is side-to-side with a cornerback, he knows to throw the ball because MVS is going to beat him in a foot race. When Lazard is, is in front of a guy, even by an inch, he's going to throw it out in front of him because Lazard is going to use those big bear paws to clamp down on that ball and be able to catch it away from his body, away from the defender, and the defender's not going to be able to just swat his arm and... and create incompletion. We have Irvin, who is fantastic. We have A.J. Dillon, who seemed in his very limited opportunities to be just an absolute bulldozer. Basically just handing the ball and you get a free seven yards. Imagine that. And you got Aaron Jones, who we know is fantastic. And worst case scenario, a defense completely sells out to stop him and we rip him up through the air. And then just put in, you know, Irvin or A.J. Dillon, who apparently nobody's scared of, and they can just run against a non-stacked box and just rip everybody to shreds. Because if you don't stack the box against A.J. Dillon, who is a beast, up against this newly impressive run-blocking offensive line, and I fully understand this is not the best Vikings defense, so it may go down a bit. But I also understand that this used to be a really bad run-blocking offensive line, and David Bakhtiari has probably never been top 10 in run-blocking in his life. So when you have Matt LaFleur come in and emphasize this and make it a major point of emphasis and say, you will run block, whether you're an offensive lineman, a tight end, a running running back, a wide receiver, it doesn't matter. You will block. And guess what? Everybody's doing that and doing it well. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to 100% say that's just because of the Vikings defense. I expect that to continue at least to some degree. Beyond impressive. And this is just scratching the surface. Because ultimately, winning football games comes down to Whereas last year it was it was matchup based. We can beat these kinds of teams. We can't beat these kinds of teams because we can do this. We can't do this. All right. If you can take away Devontae and Aaron Jones, we're kind of done. Now we have the ability to win with Aaron Jones. We have the ability to win with Irvin, who brings a completely different dynamic to this offense. We have the ability to win with Lazard and MVS. We have the ability to win with Devontae. We can do too many things to the point at which there's really not a lot of defenses that can cover this many things at the same time. And as long as the consistency stays up, we're in great shape. Now, a note about the defense before we move on to a little bit more about the uh, Brian Gutekunst handing out L's this week. The Packers defense was not good. There's no question about it. The Green Bay Packers defense was 54.5 overall. Again, a 60 is average. So clearly, not good. However, there weren't really any defenses that were very good. There were four defenses that were in the 70s, which again is is just good. Zero in the 80s, zero in the 90s. For contrast, the Green Bay Packers offense was a 91. Vikings offense was an 83. Ravens offense was an 82. Rams offense was a 78. Patriots offense was a 78. Seattle, Kansas City, Atlanta, Chicago, Raiders, Houston, Jacksonville, Tampa, Basically, all these 13 teams were better than any defense so far this week. We'll see. I think Pittsburgh's probably going to have a really dominant defense. And really, three of these teams have pretty good defenses. We'll see what happens with Tennessee, Pittsburgh, and Denver. But the point is, clearly, if anything's struggling in week one, if anything's struggling early, it's defenses. Despite having a below-average um, defense, despite having a 54 overall grade, run defense being a 43, tackling being a 48, the Packers are still only 18th. The Ravens were worse, the Falcons were worse, the Raiders, the Jets, the Cowboys, the Dolphins, the Chiefs, the Texans, the Panthers, and the Vikings all had lower grades. That's not necessarily comforting from the standpoint that they're going to be elite, but who is elite? The Ravens have a real good defense, and again, they graded out worse than we did. We know they're going to do better than that. The Bears did not look good. Nobody did. But, you know, it'll improve. So the the, the real question is, although we didn't get a full glimpse of... of uh, what exactly the defense will be. The, the question is, is it going to improve a little bit, in which case we're in trouble, or is it going to improve a lot of bit? That's really what it's going to come down to. 
Packers were 21st, and keep in mind this is out of uh, 28 teams, 21st in run defense, 23rd in tackling, 6th in terms of pass rush, and we'll get into the defense in a little bit. I'm not going to do much, but just kind of a general overview. 14th in coverage, and for fun, they were 14th on special teams. Now, looking at defense, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It was bad. It was ugly. We know it was. The highest graded defender on this team was Chris Barnes the undrafted free agent linebacker, which is number one on the list of um, Gutekunst's ha-ha tour. Not Clinton Dick's ha-ha as in in your face. Number two, not surprisingly, is Zadarius Smith. He had three pressures, which was tied for the most with Mr. Rashawn Gary. Yes, I said Rashawn Gary. I know it. See, the Rashawn Gary haters are just, they, they love when they don't see any stats for Rashawn, and they want so desperately to just hate the guy. And, you know, he tied for the most pressures, so sorry about that. Um, the only other player that graded out with a good grade was Jair. And the problem with Jair is we saw, we know of two bad plays, although the one touchdown was, I mean, that's about as tight a coverage as you can get. It was a perfectly thrown ball. But we know of at least one really bad play, but we also know about an interception and a sack for a safe. So the question is, what happened beyond that? Um... PFF overall was impressed. The the real negative here is that his coverage grade wasn't actually that good. It wasn't bad. It was above average, but it, it definitely isn't what you hope for from this uh, this guy that you expect to be an elite player. Um, guys that were real bad that really need to step it up, Chandon Sullivan, Darnell Savage, Christian Kirksey. Um, I'll leave it at that. Those are the three guys that really, really were not very good. Uh, we saw Darnell really struggle, and Kirksey clearly did not do a good job helping us in the run game. Again, the most frustrating thing I saw in that whole game, outside of several runs that should have never happened, was Kirksey trying to catch a scrambling Kirk Cousins and just could not catch up to him. It was just all this talk about athleticism. He's supposed to cover wide receivers. He can't crush, catch Kirk Cousins. Okay, cool, guys. Um, by the way, in terms of uh, pressures, you know my favorite metric is pressure percentage. Rashawn Gary was at 13.6%. Um, he had the highest of anybody. Zadarius was at an even 12. Nobody else is really even worth mentioning. Preston had zero pressures on 17 attempts, which, I mean, granted, there not a lot of attempts in this game. Um, presumably a, a roughly 25, that's what Zadarius had. But it's still not encouraging when I'm concerned about Preston regressing and he had zero pressures on 17 attempts against a bad offensive line, but, you know, whatever. It's good to see that although Preston didn't have a good day, Rashawn was there to uh, pick up the slack. All right, final thing. The Brian Gutekunst in-your-face tour. One of the other things I'm able to do here on this PFF thing is to sort by when they were drafted. And so if we start with wide receivers, think to yourself, who was the one wide receiver you wanted the Packers to get? And I understand Jerry Judy seemingly had a really good game. I didn't watch it, but obviously he was out of our drafting. uh, He was out of our range anyways. None of the wide receivers really did that well. uh, Darnell Mooney, the Chicago Bear wide receiver, drafted in the fifth round, had the best day of anybody. Um, Three targets, three receptions for 38 yards. The second guy is a guy that the Packers said they wanted to target, and I keep forgetting his name, but I remember it was in, uh, what would that have been? I think it was the third round when we got Josiah DeGuaro, which is not a bad thing. They said that they were targeting a wide receiver they were really interested in, and he went a few picks before the Packers went. Well, a few picks before the Packers went, Baltimore selected Devin Duvernay, who was a wide receiver I really like. Devin Duvernay, Devin Duvernay apparently had a pretty good day. I mean, it was only one reception, one target, one reception for 12 yards, but apparently overall he graded out pretty well. After that, not a bunch. You had LaVisca Chenault, you had Colin Johnson, you had Henry Ruggs, who was graded out as average and again got hurt. Then you had Freddie Swain, then you had seventh Jalen Rager with a bad grade. You had Van Jefferson, you had Gabriel Davis, you had C.D. Lamb, 10th, with a bad grade. Then you had Brian Edwards, then Quintez Cephas, then Michael Pittman Jr., then Justin Jefferson, then John Hightower. So Justin Jefferson had a 53 overall grade, guy that a lot of Packer fans wish that we were going to get prior to the Vikings. Unfortunately, the Vikings sniped him from us. And, and look, these guys might end up having great days. But the fact of the matter is, people have been trashing them. Why didn't you get a wide receiver? Why didn't you get a wide receiver? Pick one of these... L- I'll be nice. Pick one of these wide receivers that you want to replace one of our wide receivers with. You're taking MVS off the field and putting who on. In week one, again, this could change. But in week one, 
who? Just curious. Tight ends, right? There's all these tight ends out there. Um, maybe we take a swing at a tight end, maybe we don't. But Josiah DeGuara, what a joke. Why in the world would you possibly think about drafting Josiah DeGuara, especially that early? He's terrible. He's he's putrid, right? He's just a absolute big, dummy, poopy face. Hate him. Loser. Three tight ends played in week one. Of all the tight ends drafted, only three stepped foot on the field. Harrison Bryant, who a lot of people really like, had a 50.5 overall grade. Cole Komet, one target, zero receptions for the Chicago Bears. First tight end drafted, 54.4 overall grade. Josiah DeGuara, 71.2 overall grade. For a rookie tight end with zero practice to come in and have a 71.2 overall grade is crazy. So far, by the way, my prediction you'd be better than Jace is off to a pretty solid start. It was close. Jace had a 68.6. Better pass blocker, which is not what we drafted him to be. It was a receiver, which he did terrible in, but it, whatever. And for the record, Jace had one game that was higher than this in all of 2019. I'm just saying. I'm not trying to dog Jace. Jace seems like a great guy. Hopefully he can get on the field a little bit and play some football sometimes. But uh, that horrible, terrible, way-too-early pick of Josiah DeGuara is the only rookie tight end that did a single thing that didn't suck. How about running back? There's nothing wrong with A.J. Dillon, but why would you take him so early? He sucks! Except he was the third-highest-graded running back! Josh Kelly, then Clyde Edwards, Elair, then A.J. Dillon. Higher than J.J. Taylor, higher than Jonathan Taylor, higher than J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers, Zach Moss. DeAndre Swift was dead last. Not saying... I'm just saying. Again, all of this is small samples. So, oh, you only carried the ball a couple times. Oh, it's only week one. I get it. But you guys have been dogging him forever. An entire off season. And I say you guys, some of you I'm not talking to, but out there somewhere has been a sea of hate for what is the worst draft in human history. So far, A.J. Dillon is one of the better running back, just like he was in college. PFF's like second highest graded running back in all of college. Josiah Aguara, best tight end in, in the rookie class so far. So far, not so bad. All the wide receivers, nowhere near as impactful as you would hope. Not as good as MVS, not as good as Alan Lazard. What about offensive linemen? Of every single tackle, guard, and center in 2020, only 16 took, took the field. The best overall offensive lineman was Mackay Becton. Not surprising, the guy's an absolute freak. The second highest was Michael Owenyu. Third highest was John Runyon. Johnny Runyon, higher than Jedrick Wills in Cleveland, higher than Tristan Wirfs in Tampa Bay, higher than Tyler Biotish out of Madison, higher than Jonah Jackson, higher than Austin Jackson, higher than Robert Hunt. All these names that we've heard in all these mock drafts and, and possible this, that, or the others. In pass blocking, John Runyon had the second highest grade of anybody, one spot higher than Mackay Becton. Matt Hennessy was the only guy that did a better job. John Runyon allowed zero sacks, hits, or hurries. Again, it's the Vikings. They didn't have all that greatest stuff, you know, whatever. I'm sure, I, listen, I'm sure he's not the greatest offensive lineman in all of football. I'm not saying he is, but it's hard to hate Brian Gutekunst. I mean, if my job today was to prove everything that everybody has been saying about Brian Gutekunst and how terrible of a job he did, I got nothing. The only thing I've got is, well, you shouldn't have got Jordan Love because Aaron Rodgers is going to be around forever, which we don't know that that's the case. We don't know if Aaron Rodgers continues that this year. We don't know if he's here for two years, three years, four years. Either way, Jordan Love is waiting in the wings, and the only way that pick sucks is if Jordan Love is a bad quarterback. And even so, who should we have picked? Finally, looking at defensive grade, the third highest graded defender of anybody in the 2020 class is Chris Barn. Chase Young... Washington Redskins, then C.J. Henderson out of Jacksonville, then Chris Barnes, then Javon Kinlaw. <laughs> he was the highest-graded linebacker. By the way, Isaiah Simmons, dead lap, adding to the long list of early first-round picks that suck at linebacker. Patrick Queen had a 45.9 overall grade in Baltimore. He was basically the only guy that sucked in Baltimore on defense. Kenneth Murray was, was one spot behind him, 41.5. Just continuing to add to the list of guys that are early first-round picks or just first-round picks at linebacker that everybody says is going to be a freak and isn't. And although I'm willing to give people time, I don't. I can't think of the last time a, a first-round pick linebacker has been really good. I just can't. Isaiah Simmons had a 27.1 overall grade. Worst coverage grade of anybody, 28.3. He was horrible. 
Three targets, three receptions for 86 yards, 77 yards after the catch, two touchdowns. 158.3 was the passer rating when targeted. Horrific. Again, what, what, what should we have done? Patrick Queen was available. He's pretty terrible so far. Isaiah Wilson, Noah Igbenogany. Maybe we could have taken Jeff Gladney. He seemed to do a good job for Minnesota. There's Clyde Edwards Elair, except for the fact that we would have taken him when we could have just taken A.J. Dillon in the second round. Seems to be about as good. T. Higgins didn't do jack. Michael Pittman didn't do jack. DeAndre Swift is the worst running back of all the running backs in college football. We're not going to take a safety, Xavier McKinney or Kyle Duggar. We're not going to take a pass rusher. I already said Robert Hunt wasn't that good at guard. Ross Blacklock didn't even play. He's not even on the field. So again, it's one thing to say we wasted a pick. It's another thing to say, okay, who should we have taken? Give me a name. Who's the guy that you wanted? And then tell me how good they're doing. Maybe this, again, maybe this stuff will change. Fine. Maybe Jordan Love will change too. Nobody's willing to give him a chance. He threw like three bad passes in training camp and everyone's like, oh, stupid pick. Isaiah Simmons gets ripped up. Patrick Queen gets destroyed. In the midst of one of the best defenses in football, the guy can't even do his simple job. Nobody wants to talk about that. So one week in, and uh, Brian Gutekunst is just chilling right now. He's just looking out there into this whole landscape. There's been nothing but Packers hate, nothing but Gutekunst hate. These bunch of dummies don't know how to draft, don't know how to build a team, which is hilarious. Again, 13-3 and in one season, one turnover. Aaron Rodgers is washed. Look what he did. Packers don't have any wide receivers. Look what happened. It's, it's almost as if every single narrative against the Green Bay Packers got blown up in one week. Maybe we'll revisit it. Maybe they'll bring it back up. And I guarantee you, if we lose to the Lions, everyone's going to come rushing back. See, we knew that that was a fluke. We knew. Oh, yeah, I know. You knew. Just like you knew the Vikings had an elite defense, and now suddenly you know that they have a bad defense. It's amazing what you know. Just like now it's funny how the, the narrative is. Well, we know Aaron Rodgers is really good. And it's like, would you guys just stop? I mean, I guess that's the one good thing is it, it's all it's all group thinky, whether it's the sports media world or Twitter world or whatever. And now that the conventional wisdom is that Aaron Rodgers isn't washed up and the wide receivers in Green Bay are pretty good and all this stuff, we get to hear that on a loop all day long because everybody wants their turn to talk about how great Aaron Rodgers is. So we get to sit back and just listen to it. Now, if, again, if he does terribly against Detroit, they're going to jump at the chance to come in Talk about, see, you guys overreacted to week one. I knew he was trash. But listen, we're going to sit back. We're going to relax. We're going to enjoy it. There is so much good here. Not that I expect Chris Barnes to be a great linebacker. I don't. It's just nice that there's no information anywhere. Every bit of information you can get is that this is an elite Packers offense and that Brian Gutekunst knows exactly what he's doing. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention Tipicalea, I think, was the best or one of the best edge rushers um, in the 2020 class. Not great, but, you know, outside of Chase Young, who was? Yep, he was the second highest graded pass rusher behind Chase Young. He didn't do much. He only had five attempts, didn't generate any pressures, but it would be interesting to go watch that. For whatever reason, the uh, PFF liked him. Jonathan Garvin also was on here. He had six pass rush attempts. Uh, didn't do all that well, but still interesting enough. Uh, your Turgros Matos, the guy that was drafted early second round, he was behind Jonathan Garvin and Tipigalea, so just saying. Kalevon Chason was behind Tipigalea. So again, it's just, it's not that any of this is indicative of what's going to happen all year long, but it shuts everybody up at least for a week. All the panic, all the freaking out. We should have, we could have, we blah, 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 blah. As though everybody in the first round is just a freak, and if we don't do exactly this, they're just going to be terrible. Except Jordan Love, of course, is going to be terrible. But anybody else we could have picked would have been a freak. Any of the wide receivers means we would have had Devontae as basically our number two. Come on, man. Come on, man. Just, just roll with it. It's going to be out. Just trust the... Pr- Until Brian Gutekunst gives you a reason to think he's a dummy, let's stop saying he's a dummy. That's all I'm saying. Maybe he's a dummy. But what has he done for us? Matt LaFleur, Zadarius Smith, Preston, Rashad, Savage, Jair, Amos, 13-3, and NFC Championship. And then he does a draft that the people at the Draft Network say it wasn't a good draft, so suddenly Brian Gutekunst is a moron because the people at the Draft Network know? I'm not trying to trash those guys. They're, I love their podcasts and all that stuff, but I'm going to trust Brian Gutekunst before I trust, you know, whoever. Trust him a lot more than I trust myself, which is why I'm deferring to them. Anyways, great, great, great day. Super excited. I do want to start taking a look at some of the results of uh, the games that happened. We may start doing that tomorrow. However... 
I would also like to start hearing from you guys in terms of any questions you have or any thoughts or perspectives that you have. There's so much information, it's hard to look at absolutely everything. So if there's any kind of specifics that you want me to dive into or look at, this would be a great time to ask because um, otherwise I'm just going to keep forging ahead with all this massive pile of information. So if there's something you want out of this, get it out there. Um, you can contact me directly, uh, use the Google Voice phone number to either leave a voicemail or uh, text me or if you want go in the Facebook group and tag me in a post but that's probably I get so many Facebook notifications it's ridiculous so that's maybe not the best way to go about it but one way or another get the question in and we'll start wading through all this information again questions or just your perspective I'd love to have it otherwise you folks have yourselves a fantastic day I will talk to you tomorrow have a good one bye-bye